Welcome to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White. It is uh, mid to late September. Season is starting to change. Summer is pretty much over by everybody's measurement, and fall the leaves haven't started falling or turning colors, but you know things are a little bit different. Mickey, I don't know about you, I just feel it's really, really unfortunate after so much excitement we had that uh, the 2019 National Football League season has been canceled. Is this, this <laughs> really terrible? Welcome back, everybody. And Jim kind of nailed it there. Um, it is sad that the NFL season is over for everyone. I mean, not just us, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, everyone. Um, now, you know, we have to address this, right? We do have to talk about this. Um yeah, so how are you doing? Listeners expect us to talk about it, so I guess it's important that we get it out of the way. So here we go. Jim, as you know, Big Ben is out for the season for the Steelers. This is, um, it's problematic, to say the <laughs> least, and I'm not okay. So when I found that out, I was initially very upset, like beyond upset to a level that doesn't make sense because I was like, oh my God, it's going to be Tommy John surgery and he's going to be out and he might not come back. And did I just see Ben play his last game? I mean, I lost, I went down a spiral mm. um, on Sunday and Monday and kind of just kept going after the game because again, this is big Ben. I mean, he is the quarterback of my generation, you know, um, he is the heart and soul of our team. And I don't care what other people outside of us say, they don't mm. matter. Big Ben is really important, and he's very special, and I truly believe that he is one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game. And we're finding out now that his apparently he's had some elbow issues off and on for the last year or two, which could also explain some of those balls that got away from him here or there or what have you. But anyway, so now he's having Tommy John surgery. Steeler fans are dev devastated. However... If there is a bright side, it is this. Um, we have Mason Rudolph. He has been hand-selected and brought in. He's been with us. I believe this is now his second year um, with us. But he's being very much groomed to take over for Big Ben. So when he came in for Big Ben on Sunday, they didn't have to change the offense at all. Um, so if nothing else, it'll be a really interesting year, I guess, of watching a new quarterback develop. Woohoo! Um, but... We do now have uh, 10, 10 first-round draft picks on our defense with the, <laughs> with the trade pickup of Minka Fitzpatrick, which I believe was a gift from Kevin Colbert to the fans who were so upset about what had happened with Ben previously. Mm. And, um, and then the other bright side of it, of course, was that Ben has come out as a county and confirmed that he does plan on having the surgery as quickly as possible. He plans to rehab, and he does plan to be back next season and to fulfill his contract through – 2021 so that makes me really really happy it's just that you know we don't I who knows what our season's gonna look like certainly I don't think you and your Jets fans have any more of an idea than we do no like you know, we we had said you know they play later in the season the Jets had signed Le'Veon Bell you, you had said and perhaps cursed us Mickey when you said this season was made for the two of us um, because it's, you know, like this has been a, you know, not just a bad start for the season for the Steelers mm. and Jets. I think a, a wildly tumultuous, um, start to the season, you know, the departure of Antonio Brown, the departure of Antonio Brown from the Raiders, all of the off season drama with him, the cryogenics freezing his feet. And of course he ends up in new England. 
Um, you know, like the, the this is this is the, that's the lemon juice on your paper cut. Uh, <laughs> you know, twist to all that. Um, the yeah, you know, as you mentioned about touchdown from Tom Brady, that wasn't like yeah. the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. Uh, you know, Roethlisberger. Uh, look, teams get injuries. It's it's a part of the game. It happens. Almost every quarterback has at least one year. You know, Brady missed a year back. I mm-hmm. want to say it was two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Uh, Joe Montana. You go down the list of every great NFL Eli, player. Or I'm sorry, Peyton, not Eli, but Pete, Peyton. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eli's been on. You know, banged around. You know, mm-hmm. almost every great NFL team is going to have at least one major injury. Almost every team's going to have one major, you know, uh, a quarterback's going to have one, you know, lost year in their career. You know, Roethlisberger, you pointed out, though, is the, he was a, he's a beloved quarterback in a city and a franchise that has traditionally not loved its quarterbacks. It loved its defense, loved its running backs, but, uh, you know, never quite fell, you know, hard for, for the Terry Bradshaws of the world. Mm Mm-mm. Um, and so, yeah, and so you've got that. I mean, but to be fair, Bubby Brister didn't really offer up, you know, a whole lot. There, so. um, I think you know, Cordell loved, you know, was Stewart interesting was, to us. You know, Cordell piqued our interest. Yeah. But we liked like, Cordell. Yeah, Cordell, but, it's Cordell's variety. Of, all the things he did that he wasn't yes, a quarterback that really had. He made it fun during the late 90s, definitely. Um, but I think that, you know, like I said, Big Ben is our quarterback. And Pouncey said it best by saying that, it's still his team. Like we all support Mason Rudolph. We want him to be successful, but until Ben actually retires, this Steelers mm. team will be Big Ben's team. All of it, offense and defense. Yeah, um, I mean, like I know it's really hard to find bright spots and silver linings here right now, Mickey. But um, uh, well, who's your quarterback? I was about to say nobody on the team's got mono. That's that's well, something. <laughs> I mean, here you go. Oh, he's got, you know, he's got a torn ligament or something in his arm hurts. Okay, that's normal for a quarterback. Mononucleosis does not usually pop up on the injury list. Thank goodness that you know, Monday Night Football had that fantastic little logo. You know, Sam Darnold, quarterback of the Jets, out indefinitely, mononucleosis. With the graphic of Sam Darnold staring out at the camera and then pointing directly to you, the viewer. Mm-hmm. That is the public service announcement that all of our nation's teens need. <laughs> Mononucleosis, it's coming for you. Um, the kissing de- disease is coming yeah, for you. Yes, most people get this either in high school or college. You know, um, or fifth grade. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, someone got started early. Am I, am I interpreting that correctly, Mickey? Oh, well, no, but I really did get mono in fifth grade. And, I, and of course, I had all, you know, as you can imagine, all the jokes that go along with it and everything else. But legitimately, we still have no idea where I actually picked it up. Mm. Look, when people say a quarterback is fast, <laughs> um, usually they meet on the field. Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, Quincy Nunwa out for the year for the second time in two years. Apparently, his neck is made out of Legos and uh, hit it too hard. It breaks. Uh, two linebackers out for uh, for that. You know, we traded off our our third guy in the off season because hey, what are we going to need these guys? We got two great starting linebackers. Mm. Mind. Um, just, you know, I, I was like, oh, Jim's complaining about the Jets. But let me let me give you an, ex, an example of just how spectacularly bad the Jets season has turned out really fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, besides the fact that last week uh, at halftime, they were down uh, something in the neighborhood of like, you know, 14 to two first downs. Um, besides the fact that they had, you know, that uh, Trevor Simeon, 
who <laughs> were you know who we signed in the offseason because Adam Gase was convinced that he was better than your average backup quarterback. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's point out most teams don't. You know, the reason the backup the backup quarterback is a backup for a reason. The only mm-hmm. reason for optimism is actually I'd say the the situation where the Steelers are in, where you've had a guy sitting on the bench for a while, mm-hmm. drafted him fairly high. It was a first round or second round guy, right? Uh, I think we actually got him third round. Okay, so you know, he sees you. Know, you had reasons to believe this was the heir apparent. Uh, maybe he can come in and do something. Most of the times, your backup quarterback is your you know journeyman, been around mm-hmm. the league, game manager. You know, you're just hoping he can you know not screw things up long enough so that you're. We you're, used you're to starter. have the best backup quarterback in the league, Charlie. Charlie Batch, Batch right? Mm-hmm. Loved him. Uh, you know, Still blue. Love him, but loved him as a backup quarterback. Um, the so Simeon go the the New York Jets offensive line which never really practiced altogether in the preseason. And go figure, it turns out that matters. Uh, <laughs> look, uh, here's like somebody Jim, said- Let me ask you a question. Cause you, yes. I mean, not to be rude, but obviously you could go on about the Jets misgivings that's, all that's day. That's so unlike you, Mickey. <laughs> um, it, it, you could go on about everything that's wrong with the Jets all day. My question is this, how are you feeling about the season? Like, whereas, like I said, for me, I'm kind of- I, I, it is what it is, but I, my expectations have obviously changed considerably. I'm going to be watching games for different reasons, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, how do you feel about it, your season? Because, like, the moment for me where I've, I actually had a moment where I felt bad for Jets fan was when Le'Veon fumbled and then he cried. <laughs> um, I got to, first of all, you know, kudos to Le'Veon. Not that you're going to want to hear this, Mickey, but, like, you know, he played hard for 60 minutes. He was in your a game entire where- offense. You know, he almost entirely. Um, mm-hmm. It he was it looked like he was playing one and eleven out there. Mm-hmm. Um, there were astonishing plays where he's trying to, you know, he's making guys miss because no one has blocked. Um, there was a guy on on Twitter that during the Monday night game, I said, "God, the jet." Pardon my language, uh, listeners. God, the Jets line looks like a pile of shit. And I was like, "No, guys don't like to run through piles of shit." <laughs> That slows them down. They're they're careful, right? We would actually so what you're be better off. Was comparing the line to a pile of shit was offensive to a pile of shit. People people try to avoid a pile of shit. You know they they they're not they, they don't really dive <laughs> into that. A little bit of turns, just the smell. You know. Uh, wow. So, yeah. yeah. So uh, wow. So so let me see. So going so in case you want sure. Yeah, your answer. God, you know, I, I'm less into this season uh, than I have been in football for a while. And it's it's not fun because, you know, you spend a lot of offseason looking forward to it. Um, you're ex- I like to think my expectations are manageable. I, you know, can, can I get an exciting team? Can we play meaningful games in November and December? And right now we're 0-2. We're looking at 0-6, maybe even 0-7 based on these, you know, five tough teams coming up. You know, we're not going to be playing meaningful games in November and December. And I went into this season, you know, when they signed Adam Gase as head coach, I was not enthusiastic. <laughs> there was nothing I'd seen in Miami to make you say, oh, this is the guy. Can I yeah. ask a question? You can. You just did. When is it a good idea to hire someone that Miami has fired? To the extent I, I can buy into the theory, which I, I didn't believe, but here, here's the argument. Mm-hmm. Gase uh, is an offensive genius, bullshit, uh, <laughs> that bad ownership and bad management, his quarterback kept getting injured, um, 
that ownership kept meddling with his decisions. Um, the, the idea that there was some sort of potential there and just in the bad circumstance. I could say, and again, sometimes you get coaches. Um, Belichick was terrible in his first gig in, in Cleveland, right? In Cleveland, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes a head coach, they go into it, they think they know what they're doing. Being a head, particularly when you get a talented offensive coordinator or a talented defensive coordinator, they step into the head job for the first time. And lo and behold, it's much harder than they expected. Mm-hmm. Can't have pressure the media. Uh, they're having to learn another side of the game, game management, um, keeping the locker room, all kinds of little stuff that just di- you know escapes them. Now, sometimes usually what happens, though, is that there's, I don't want to say a penance period, but you know they spend some time in the wilderness, right? They kind of <laughs> look at themselves. What did I learn from this experience? What would I yes. do differently or something like that? Sometimes they go back to being an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator. And then they get their second shot, and they're better the second time around because they have that. Now, here's the thing. Adam Gase never spent any time in the wilderness. He never <laughs> never wanted any Australian walkabout to examine, to search for his soul and see who he is. And, you know. So there was no uh, self-reflection between the time that Miami fired right. him and the Jets he, he fired him. He was unemployed for like a week. <laughs> right? I mean, so it's one of those things where um, it's not like he really comes back humbled or, or you know, having learned some hard-learned lessons or anything like that. Um, so I, again, the well, wasn't one of his first skeptical. acts to basically say that he wasn't happy with the Le'Veon Bell, tr- um, deal. Yeah. And you know, the, you know, like, you know, so far the, the bell looks like the only thing that's worked out in, in the entire Jets off season. Um, Quinn Williams, everybody loved number three overall pick the, you know, lovable, likable, uh, most talented defensive tackle. Look, you know, out after two, after two, two, like three out in the third quarter, the first game, nobody knows when he's coming back. Um, signed CJ Mosley, all world linebacker for Baltimore. He's out indefinitely. Um, uh, as I mentioned, Inunua out for the year, Avery Williamson out for the year. Uh, some of these are injuries, but some of them are just, you know, uh, we've got Ryan Khalil to come out of retirement from the Carolina Panthers. Now we see why he retired. <laughs> we look, you know, we weren't expecting this guy to go back to all pro caliber, but you know, could he be a guy who could hold the fort for another year? Jim, you speak like someone who actually thought the Jets had a chance going into this season. Um, I'll just here's the best metaphor I can come up with for this, Mickey. Okay, let's say here, <laughs> I'll, I'll put this in very personal terms. <laughs> I tell you, Mickey, that they're finally making a movie out of the all time favorite comic book and TV show, Rutabaga Man. And you're like, Jim, I never really liked Rutabaga Man. I, I never thought it was a good idea. I never thought, no, 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 I'm like, no, this is going to be really good. So you see the first trailer for Rutabaga Man, and it looks terrible. They've cast Carrot Top as the leader, as, as, as Rutabaga Man. Pauly Shore as his nemesis. Um, the whole thing is directed by some sort of German neo-expressionist guy, you know. Yeah. But I'm like, no, no, it's going to be really good. It's really, really going to be good. You see the commercials, it looks worse. You, get the, you read the reviews, the reviews look terrible. But I'm like, Mickey, trust me, I know what I'm doing. This is going to be a good movie. And we go to the movie, and it's every bit as bad as you pictured. And you turned to me, and my answer was, huh, wow, I, I really was wrong about that. Who saw that coming? <laughs> That's kind of what the entire Jets management has been this season, where, you know, no, no, Adam Gase is going to know. He's an offensive genius. He knows what he's doing. Well, you know, the line looks weak. No, 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 we didn't need anything. Our line's going to be good. Trust us. Trust us. We don't Let have me anybody ask even... you something. Have you talked to your therapist about this? <laughs> but that's, you know, and I, there are... <laughs> Here's the so the other so we we are you, you know should tell him about Rudabiga man. 
Meanwhile, someone in Hollywood is furiously taking notes. All right, you know, Carrot Top and Pauly Shore. I know. Uh, big up, man. The, you know, I, so um, I listen to DC Sports Radio a lot. And, you know, we're in a bad shape. Dolphins are in full tank. But the Redskins also strike me as a similarly uh, a franchise where if they'd fired the coach and started afresh, at least the fans would have that to, you know, to go for. They're, they're sleepwalking through a season where nobody felt all that good about what they're, and, you know, they're not even going with Haskins, right? The rookie they drafted. If you draft, oh, yeah. at least for the season, you got, okay, let's see what this rookie's got. Is this the guy who we're going to build around for the future? And they're not even I don't that. understand. If you don't have a team and you don't have a plan for the season anyway, why not start the rookie? Right? You know, Give him the experience. You know, what, you know, Case Keenum is the answer you've been looking for? I'm sorry. I'm just not mm. buying that, you know? Um, yeah. It's a so strategy. this attitude in which you're a fan base where you really feel like the, the management and the ownership has told you, trust us, we know what we're doing. Trust us, we know what we're doing. At some point, you start seeing the results where you're like, I'm sorry, I don't believe you anymore. And if you don't know what you're doing, I, you know, there, there's, there's really no point in getting all that emotionally invested week to week. I mean, you're a Raiders fan, on, like 1998. Yeah. You know, you're in a situation where you find yourself realizing, I know we're heading into another game where the score is going to be 40 to 3. And the really big question is, can we get a first down before halftime? You know, like you start saying, you know, I, 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 there's probably some yard work I need to do on a, on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> wow. I get it. I get it. So having said that, does that mean you won't be watching the games? Probably not. Uh, <laughs> or you know, you know, the the boy, my sons like going to the restaurant we watch the game at. Um, I, I will say there was, you know, when, when it starts because for to, all of us, it's more than just the game. Yeah, you know, look, when the games start to conflict with like you know anniversary trips and stuff like that, then it doesn't become become as important to me to get to a place where I can watch the game. Right. I'll, I'll listen to my brother and my father comment on the phone, and you know, my phone just seems to be endless instant messages of of four letter words. <laughs> then I, and then I realized that my older son now has a cell phone and he's probably getting all these messages too. So great, great. Yeah, we have um, I have two different serious group texts that are going pretty much 24-7 about all topics, but it usually comes back to football. And to say that it has been a roller coaster of a season thus far in the last what two weeks, three weeks. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. there there was a moment I left the room for about I think it was like a half hour, came back, checked my text message, and I had 126 texts. Wow. That was during the whole Antonio Brown, this, that, the other. He's a Raider, now he's a Patriot, during that whole fiasco. Of a, of a it's, it's the JFK assassination. All right? of a sudden, like, you know, oh my good, you know, JFK is shot. Oswald is shot. Who's going to shoot the next guy? Yeah. yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. And, uh, you know, well, and, and, to be fair, you know, you and I have talked about, you know, conspiracy theories like the JFK theories and whatnot. And Lord knows when you're talking about the Patriots, the dark empire, yes. the evil Spy empire, age. nothing I think is, you know, something that should be put past Belichick ever. You should In never assume. Yes. Yeah. Like, you should never assume that he's on the right side of the situation. I kind of always assume that Belichick has done something shady. And watching Antonio Brown show up there felt that way to me. Yeah. Now, you know, of course, that could just be, again, some conspiracy theory. But I'm telling you, Jim, when the Navy pilots show up 
with video of Belichick tampering with <laughs> AB, you guys will believe me. Yeah, I mean, the, the you know, for those who uh, hadn't heard, uh, the Pentagon has come out and said, yes, in fact, there are a variety of videos, uh, including one apparently released or was on, posted online by one of the guys in Blink-182. Because, um, you know, like this now we're in the Mad Libs version of news. In which I tend just... to agree. I saw that and I thought, why did the guy from Blink-182 have a super secret UFO video? How the hell did that happen? I mean, Dan Aykroyd, I believe. Right, you know, there, there are certain celebrities you're like, oh, okay, that guy, that makes sense. But uh. why? I mean, I, I'm gonna assume he's some type of UFO buff or something. I don't know. Y you'd hope, <laughs> otherwise, you know, yeah. I just but I mean, th I mean, this is serious news. Now, this is something that used to be, you know, we have it on the cover, obviously, not like the Enquirer because it's above that, but like the what was it, like the World News Daily or whatever. Yeah. And we, you know, we should emphasize this is not oh, we found alien spaceships. Mm -hmm. This is. People who fly for a living, who's, you know, in the Navy and the Air Force and, and other parts of the military, have encountered craft that they don't know what they are. They're quite literally an unidentified flying object. Mm. Could be craft of some other country. Mm -hmm. uh, could be some sort of experimental sort of thing. Um, I suppose, you know, the argument of, oh, it's a weather balloon reflecting the light of Venus. You know, like, no. you'd think that these guys would be able to recognize that, you know, that, that all the traditional explanations have been checked out and the people whose job is to patrol our skies are like, yeah, we have no idea what that is. Uh, if it was little green men, we'd, you know, <laughs> you know, here's the other thing, which is kind of intriguing. So it's, again, it's not saying we've got aliens. You know, uh, by the way, that Jazz Shaw is considering this like a national holiday. <laughs> well, here's it. If we do discover alien life, yeah, I would like the afternoon off. I think, uh, <laughs> I think I think a lot of stuff we're gonna be able to wait if that uh, if that turns out to be the well I heard um, I heard something earlier this week that made me giggle which was if the aliens drive past Earth they probably lock their doors <laughs> yeah the old joke you know <laughs> we have found no intelligent life on this planet or something mm -hmm. but uh, you know sorry, I, I've always been a little bit skeptical and not just because of the you know. Um, you know, it's always some Floyd in his pickup truck who gets uh, up there and they're fascinated with anal probes for some reason. Apparently, they are big time anal photographers. Uh, um, so I've always been kind of skeptical of that. But let's assume that you're some, you know, much more advanced civilization. You encounter Earth and a court, you know, from our standards, we look like cavemen to them, right? We are this unbelievably primitive. We're reality of life. TV. Right? Yeah. So maybe you observe, maybe you watch us, but maybe they don't want to meet us. They're, you know, like, they just move in next door. Oh, God, they seem kind of weird. You know, I just, I just watch them a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're nice, maybe they're not. And look, you know, look, assuming they have the ability to observe human behavior, whether it's from just, you know, long-range scanners or listening to radio signals or maybe even watching reality TV. Uh, I mean, Mickey, you know, Bachelor can't be... Showing them our best side, can it? Well, is the news showing them something better? Well, uh, you know. This is what I'm saying. Like, what if they come down for entertainment purposes? What if we're just like a zoo? And they're like, oh, let's see what they're up to now. You know, that would actually be a good sci-fi movie. <laughs> kind of like Men in Black, but the idea of like the aliens come and they're not interested in conquering. They're not mm -hmm. interested in being our saviors. It's just like we're a vacation place. 
Yes. Um, where you go and you hang out and you're like, dude, have you seen the humans are doing these days? Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. they are. They're up in arms about vaping, you know. They, yes, exactly. Bad enough, they always thought that inhaling smoke was good, even though it killed <laughs> them. Our species figured this out a billion years ago. Don't inhale smoke, but they're still doing it. But now they're flipping out and they're like beating each other in the sticks over vaping or something. <laughs> Again, I feel like there's potential here. Because yeah. this is finally an angle that I might be interested in believing that they would find us somehow entertaining. Um, because the idea that they have any real interest in us seems really limited. Like, I feel like, one, if they wanted to talk to us, they would have by now. Yeah. <laughs> so, idea. again, like that neighbor that you, like, you didn't meet right away when they moved in, and now it's kind of awkward. So you just, like, see them in the driveway and wave. And you just kind of get the nod. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, we've seen a million and one first contact scenes in movies and television over the years, Mickey. But mm-hmm. has there ever been like a really awkward one? I'm trying to think. Like, like, like this, I mean, this e. thing where does ET count? No, like it's it's, it's heartwarming and and all that. How about one? Okay, all right. So you know, to be um, third rock uh, from the sun, there were probably several awkward. Moments. Yeah, kind of. You know, think let, let's picture a little. You know, pardon me for being a little off color. Let's say they're fairly humanoid. They arrive. Uh, the humans go to meet, and like the the woman human realizes they're checking her out the entire time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like my eyes are up here, Zorback, you know, <laughs> or something like. See, I find them to be. I, I see. I would expect them to be more like coming and like looking at us, like we would look at dogs. Oh, are are humans cute? Yes, are good humans. Oh, like and like pat them on the head. Yeah, I've got an unlimited energy energy supply here. Go fetch, go fetch, go get it, boys. Go, go! Look at you, look at you running on the treadmill. (laughs) We probably do look pretty ridiculous to them. I'm just saying, I think there's potential there. But for those who believe in UFOs, and I know that we have many listeners who do, I I think this is a real breakthrough for them. Um, this is something they've wanted people to admit for years. Finally, the Navy admits it. And to be fair, they now believe that this is like basically admitting that there are aliens and that we've had contact and the government's big liars for hundreds of years. Maybe they are. I don't care mm. enough to really invest myself in this one. Yeah. I don't know why, because like I love paranormal stories and like ghost stories and things of that nature. I'm even semi-interested in um, like... Not not as interested as in like the cryptology type of things where they do, but I don't know. UFOs have always kind of been a stretch for me, and again, primarily because I believe like there. I guess there is a possibility of life out there. I just don't know why they would be interested in us. Uh, I I say I think the, the, you know particularly the whole aliens live among us uh, theories and and the idea they control governments and all that kind of stuff. Um, Mickey, don't you, wouldn't you like to think they do a better job? Yes. <laughs> right? yes. I mean, the very, you know, if the government's something that's like super efficient and everything, all of a sudden, okay, well, uh, you know, the Martians have taken over and, and it's about time. That's, that's good. Good for them to finally. Good go. for them. Exactly. I feel like that they would run as like, look, we're not humans. Huh. So yeah. vote for us. Overcome your human frailties. Exactly. <laughs> we're not um, like you guys. So, you know, veering back toward to the realm of pop culture and stuff, um, because it, so it, uh, Amer- uh, American Horror Story has never done an alien one, have they? 
Not specific to alien, no. Yeah, because they've done demons and ghosts and killers and, you know. Yeah, yeah. see, they're much more, he, American Horror Story is very much in line with the type of horror that I like. Um, Generally closely related to real life, just slightly surreal, Mm -hmm. because I feel like that's scarier Mm -hmm. than things that are uber surreal, so to speak. Um, But again, American Horror Story is back this year. Um, Starts up this week. The theme this year is 1984. Now, obviously, we could say that the 80s are having another moment. Here we are. Um, Seems that people are very nostalgic about the 80s. Um, People older than us. They have to be older than us or maybe younger than us, I think is probably more appropriate. Um, People who didn't really live through it or maybe I, I don't know I, I just think it's interesting that very much like they're tapping into or trying to t- create nostalgia for gen x and and we're a very anti-nostalgic group so it's odd um how well, about I, say, go ahead. I was gonna say first thought number one is um i i, I smell stranger things coming off the promos mm. a lot including the, like there's one of a girl who's in Kind of in short shorts, but it's still a very 80s style. It looks like she's sitting on the edge of a swimming pool or something, and something pulls her down. And See, that is a direct takeoff of the Friday, 13, Friday the 13th series okay. movie. Okay, it doesn't remind you of Barb in the pool in the first season? No. Okay. No, like immediately I recognized it as a takeoff of Camp Crystal Lake, which is where Jason lived and operated, and obviously his mother as well. Mm. Uh, by the way, did you watch last season with the apocalypse and all that stuff? Yes, mm-hmm. uh, I watch it you, always. Like right. I, I, the only one that I didn't finish. Actually, there were two seasons that I did not finish because I did not care. And mm-hmm. one was called Asylum. Couldn't stand it, and I ultimately ended up having someone like tell me what happened because I needed to know the part of the story, but I would not watch it. And then there was one called Freak Show. That involved a lot of clowns and circus people. Okay. That was not the one that was about the election, though, right? No. No, okay. no, no. <clears throat> I did watch that one, yes. Yeah. Um, what did you think of the apocalypse? I was very intrigued by that opening episode. Uh, by the second episode, it was clear they were going in a completely different direction than I expected and not my cup of tea. Um, too bleak to be interesting. Uh, but I don't know. What did you, th- what, what did you think? Because I, I thought the opening one, which was basically... Uh, and it came not that long after the Hawaii thing in which they'd gotten that erroneous message of incoming ballistic missile, mm-hmm. seek shelter. You know, boy, there there's, you know, fertile material there. But again, uh, that's that's what the beauty of American Horror Story is. It just skims reality. Yeah, you know. Uh, but then they were doing the Victorian underground bunker nutty nut, and it was like, eh, it's not my thing, so. Yes. Um, no, it actually, ended up, that one ended up being a very good season simply because they brought the coven back in. And one of the best seasons by far is Coven, which was about the witches in New Orleans. Um, it was fantastic. The first season, um, American Horror, which I think they now call Murder House, was phenomenal. Epic from start to finish. Um, Coven was like that. There are very few seasons that are like that. I thought Apocalypse was actually better than I anticipated it was going to be. Mm. And I needed that because the one they had done about the election ended really weak and I was really unhappy with it. And it's interesting, too, because there's another show that's on Netflix. It's called Slasher. And I think it's on Netflix. For some reason, I was confusing it with Netflix, but I believe it's on Netflix. It's called Slasher. It's a Canadian production. And 
it's basically a slasher movie put into like however many episodes. So eight episodes, 10 episodes, 13 episodes, but people just die every single episode. Like it's a horror movie. Uh, and they tell yeah. a story from beginning to end again, first season, really good middle season. Eh. Well, this one's we're working on it. Yeah. Um, but like, I, I'll be very curious to see what he does with this because, I, again, I feel like it's going to be yeah, obviously full of nostalgia. Um, but I also am curious to see if it stays in line with like, because the 80s were very much about that whole slasher movie thing. Like, my parents did not allow me to watch soap operas, but I was allowed to watch Friday the 13th movies. <laughs> Do you know why, Jim? Why? Because survival if you skills? Drink, no. Because if you drink or you have sex or you do drugs in a Friday the Thirteenth movie, guess what happens to you? Ah, okay, all right. So it's, it's really strict morality enforcement. That's gonna be yes, know. you die, and the only person who ever lives is the virgin who didn't drink. There you go. All right. I, actually, as, you, as you're going through that, Mickey, I'm kind of observing almost all of the. American Horror Story seasons have had some, in, like a lot of them have this very intriguing idea that I never quite like the uh, the execution of. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of setting a, uh, a horror story amongst the, you know, immediately after the Trump election in 2016 and this, uh, this atmosphere of paranoia, this atmosphere of shock, neighbors turning on neighbors, you know, like that's, you know, that's stuff that's really only like one step beyond what things that happen in real life. And I guess, you know, they always kind of blur the line between, you know, hey, here's this like really genuine um, psychological horror idea. Mm-hmm. And here's a big scary monster. Yep. And to me, I don't feel like it never quite, you know, you you, you could have had a very rarely does it mesh quite as well as I think it does on paper. But, uh, you know, uh, maybe this one will be better. I don't know. I'm very much looking forward to the season. Um, and, I, you know, again, listeners will keep you updated as it rolls through. But, but again, I'm a horror fan. This is something I enjoy. Again, I, I don't, I'm not lying when I say I was not allowed to watch soap operas because of the immorals. And I was allowed to watch all horror movies, really, because across the board, that was the message. Okay. If you have sex, if you drink, if you do mm-hmm. drugs, whoever the baddie is, whether it be Jason or Freddie or Michael Myers or any other random, like you're going to be dead. Oh, Mickey, I suddenly got a, a brilliant idea. Okay. So you cr- your next big Freddie or Jason or Michael Myers, you know, your, your next big terrible monster in a horror movie series is going to be some sort of person or serial killer or whatever that embodies cancel culture <laughs> that you know you've Vindictive been can- man right you've been canceled right this idea of you've done you've you know because just as you said drinking sex all these other things that were um you you they were considered you know uh, uh sins that could be punished with death you know Correct, uh, yes um, but, you know, that the, the idea of horror stories being these kind of, you know, harsh morality plays or something like that. Um, we, we kind of, you know, your, your observation that this vindictive society, mm-hmm. we're, we're living in one. And people point out that, you know, this whole idea of cancel culture, it's got sin, but it's got no redemption, right? It's got punishment mm. of wrongdoing and its own rules of blasphemy and its own, you know, things you're never supposed to do. Again, like, you know, crazy. Yeah, again. Let's just be clear for everybody out here, Mickey. If you're the prime minister of Canada, <laughs> you probably should try to avoid wearing blackface 
or brown face or whatever particular hue he was selecting um, no more than three times. <laughs> you know, Look, I get I, what this, you're saying. As I put it to somebody earlier today, Mickey, there are clan members who haven't worn blackface three times. <laughs> that, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, but again, I think the difference is, one, he will have the, be given the option of redemption. Well, mm-hmm. and we know why, but let's not get into that here. What I will say is it bothers me a little bit in that I'm not what I would consider a super religious person. I do consider myself to be faithful, but not religious, if that makes sense. Um, And so one of the things I think that concerns me is we have a society that is not willing to forgive. Mm. Like in, in every single teeny slight, people feel like they need to find revenge. They need to find a way to get back at that person for a teeny tiny slight. And in the slight may not even be to them. Right. Yeah. It could be to someone they're a fan of. I think you might have talked about that actually in adult this week. But there are people that will lash out at you on behalf of others in a way that doesn't even make sense. And where is this rage coming from? Yeah. So this was over. It, was, it started by a, a New Yorker article that was looking at uh, obsessive fan bases. Some would say okay. toxic fanhood and stuff like that. And the example they used was uh, a a fan of uh, Nicki Minaj. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicki Minaj is the hip hop artist whose videos you can't play anywhere near your children. Um, <laughs> they are just bursting forth with uh, explicit imagery and lyrics and such. But she also was a judge on what, The Voice or one yes. of those as well. Yes. So. Yeah. Pretty you know, safe to say one of the biggest stars in hip hop. Um, and, you know, that so there was somebody, someone who had been a fan who had an internship at some uh, company who basically said, you know, they listened to one of the recent albums. So I was like, you know, it's not bad, but I kind of feel like it's time for her to grow as an artist. She's not really covering new territory. This is not someone, you know, you know it was like, it was a which criticism. by the way, it, just so you know, is a very valid complaint about Nicki Minaj. And one of the reasons why she's quote, semi-retired now. I was going to say, there are plenty of artists who achieve a certain level of fame and they're afraid to move too far off things that, that, uh, that got them where they were. There are plenty of cases of artists who do try to go in a new direction. Um, what was the YouTube uh, Zuropa, right? I mean, sometimes a band or some you know, musician or oh my god actors that will whole... go into like it, and it just doesn't work. It's just not what they're good at, not what they're you know. Uh, fans don't like it. Fine, you know. Um, but the reaction of the Nicki Minaj fans was like hundreds upon hundreds of "Go kill yourself." It was, it was unbelievably vindictive. And apparently, the, the question is, you know, did Minaj herself respond? She said she did, but it was later deleted. I remember, you know, one of your favorites, um, Chrissy Teigen, who, you know, most of us enjoy and is very funny and all that stuff. There was some news anchor in like Oklahoma City or something like that, you know, who who made some sort of comment. Ah, oh, Chrissy Teigen, she's everywhere. You know, do we need her at every award ceremony or something? But <laughs> it was something, you know, kind of snotty, right. you know, kind of snotty. You know, and, but Chrissy Teigen responded. Of course, Chrissy Teigen's fan base just, you know. Yeah. <laughs> You know, like a swarm of bees, you know. <laughs> the sound that you made was perfect to describe what the internet mob sounds like in my head. <laughs> yes, it's like a, it, it's, it's a not quite functioning correctly motor. Um, and, and just kind of this sense of, I remember writing at the time, like, oh, okay, I can understand if you're Chrissy Teigen, if you're uh, offended by that. It's it's a little kind of snotty or snide, but um, at the end of the day, you're Chrissy Teigen. 
right? Well, right. Still, like, I mean, you're Liam, still married to John Legend. You're still, that. you know, like, yeah. yeah well, with, in that in that case with Chrissy, she does sometimes punch down, but she, I don't think, sees it as punching down so much as like just being a normal person, like responding to it and not necessarily recognizing that her fans would go completely insane. But again, that that insane behavior on the act of the fans or the people mm. that feel the need to track people down because they created a gift they don't like, or someone who needs to be tracked down and exposed for the tweets or the guy from SNL this week yeah, who, you know, he was hired apparently um, and then fired summarily because he had done some interviews with what could be construed as racist comedy. Now, you know what? I don't care one way or the other. SNL hired him. They hired him for a reason. It didn't change because he had done this interview. Yeah. I mean, again, any environment where everybody is, if you go into a comedy club and you are easily offended, it's probably going to be minutes (laughs) before you hear something that upsets you and you don't want, and you, you know, you, you walk out. But why do the, I want to speak to a manager. People insist on then going to these shows and then complaining about them. This This is a really good metaphor, Mickey. Uh, okay. I want to speak to a manager because you know somebody had done mm-hmm. I think the last less debate you know uh, where um, uh, one of the senators said you know they said oh my goodness she was like one step away from asking to see a manager you know <laughs> right. this, this tone of you know <laughs> um, and somebody said you know when when somebody complains to your HOA right they're they're um, I'm sorry I don't like the way your uh, your your lawn care is going I need to speak to a manager you know this kind of. Mm-hmm. Like we want someone in authority to rebuke someone who has offended us or or who has bothered us, who has wronged us or something. And we really are losing the, you know, like, and again, I so question, my first question is, you know, is it that people really are more sensitive today? And yeah, they probably are. But also like we've created this incentive in which there are very few, you know, if the homeowners association said, you know, their lawn isn't really any of your business, go away. Um, if Lauren Michaels had said, you know what, this is a funny performer and we're going to stick with him. Mm-hmm. You know, if he's a bad performer, we'll get rid of him. But in the end, we don't really care about this. Is person. there no irony in the fact that they were originally called the not quite ready for primetime players because they were so poorly behaved? Yeah. Like, you know, like Jim Belushi would never make it. Oh, John, uh, Jim Belushi, John Belushi. John Belushi. Um, sorry. Yes. John Belushi would never make that. Not even a question. When Carvey, Dana Carvey came back to host a couple of years ago, he said there was, he did some character who's basically an Asian stereotype. Uh-huh. And, you know, now I, I will give you an interesting example. Um, so somebody had done a video on Stranger Things and it's called The Dangers of Nostalgia, but there's like a million and one YouTube videos with that title. So you're going to have trouble uh-huh. finding the exact one. But they went back and they watched the first, in, in the most recent episode of season of Stranger Things, um, the Winona Ryder character is briefly seen watching Cheers, right? And and the idea that, you know, uh, her relationship with Hopper is a bit like Sam and Diane, right? This, you know, um, seeming hostility between a man and a woman that is clearly reflecting a great deal of repressed sexual tension, et cetera, et cetera. Someone really thinks way too much about this stuff. Continue. Ah, no, because so they, he went back and he actually played the scene from that first episode in which Sam and Diane really go at it. And she's calling him a arrogant, smug, troglodyte, you know, stuff. And at one point, he fumes and he says, "I want to, I'm, you know, he's, I'm going to bounce you off every wall in this room." <laughs> and you know, I ought to really pop you a good one. And they're like, 
like it was, I, again, I was too young to watch it at the time. Probably didn't catch it in reruns. He's kind of threatening to beat her up. That's (laughs) (laughs) from in 1982 or 83 or whatever it debuted. Most people were okay with it from the perspective of 2019. You're like, Oh, Sam Malone does not seem like this charming, lovable goof, you know, womanizing goofball. You know, you're, 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 well, but can you even have a lovable womanizer now? Yeah. Very, you know, fair point. Um, well, somebody had done a good thing where they said every, almost every sitcom, particularly from, like, say, the 80s to, like, probably the late 2010s, back when they stopped making sitcoms, um, had a character who was the horny character. Yeah, that's true. Right? You know, Joey Tribbiani on Friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the character who... Uh, you could even probably... Because since we're watching that as a family, you could probably... Kirk Cameron's character on Growing Pains had a new girlfriend every week. Right? Okay. So the, minimum, they were girl-crazy. If not, there was some character who could always be, you know, brought in to do some sort of sex joke. Um, but, it, you know, but so the observation, there are certain things where, you know, yeah, times do change. And the sort of things that are okay for humor do change over time. Um, I do feel like people feel like the, the, that trend is on the accelerator. And we don't have, every time you just say, this is an inappropriate topic for humor. And look, again, I think, you know physically threatening to beat someone up because uh, they offend you is not, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that scene with Sam alone. But really at the does. same time, like it might look weird in retrospect, but I don't know again, because you only saw that portion and the portion was highlighted by the writer. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if you watched the entire episode, if it would even stand out to you because oh, again, because no, it all Mickey, it all leads up to, are you as, are you as turned on as I am more? And they immediately begin kissing. Exactly. And on the one hand, ha ha, and of course the audience kind of, you know, and maybe it was this buildup of tension. Yes. Uh, you know, and then of course, like, you know, so they start, you know, uh, you know, they start mm-hmm. kissing and it's a release of tension. Now, I think if he had actually like hauled off and punched her, that's a different oh, yeah. situation. Yeah. But I mean, I think that definitely in fights and certainly in arguments between couples, people say things all the time. Oh, Yeah. That are horrible. And sometimes they're also very funny. So, you know. Well, the other thing is that there's no, like, anyway, family but, sitcoms, people fighting is, you know, where a lot of the drama comes from. True. And you kind of need some sort of, like, again, you know, just as if you've ever been out with another couple and they start fighting, uh-huh. you know, and it gets really awkward and you're kind of looking at the menu or you're, you know, trying try to find any possible excuse you can to get away from this circumstance. Um you know, this is a classic example of how you and I handle things differently. All right, how do you handle it then? Um, because you're like, I, I am the absolute opposite. Like, if they are gonna sit there and have it out in front of me, I'm like, well, what happened? Huh. You're mm-hmm. so, so like, you're cheering I, them like, on. If we're out to dinner with couples, they're friends of ours, you know what I mean? So, in the event that a friend of ours actually were in a fight and started like snipping at each other at dinner, and, and it has happened. Um, I am the one who was like, what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I am the, I am the marriage referee. I'm like, yeah. step in. Well, if they're going to do it in front of Plaintiff, you. How do you plead? You know? Yes, exactly. How do you plead? You look guilty. <laughs> but you know what? It, it is interesting in that. You know, not all things age well, whether it be comedy, whether it be, you know, a storyline, what have you. Some things people talk about with great nostalgia because it was the best thing that ever aired. You go back and watch it and you're like, eh, it was all right. I think that obviously you attach a certain emotional 
attachment to a show at that time where you were in your life, mm-hmm. when you watched it and how you connected with it. And I think it's going to be fascinating because coming up, Friends is leaving Netflix soon, and Seinfeld is going to be coming to Netflix. It's been on Hulu, but it's coming to Netflix. And I think it's really interesting because I've always seen that that sitcom divide as kind of the Gen X divide, if you will. Mm. Like some yeah. people are in the Seinfeld camp, and some people are in very firmly in the Friends camp, and there the two shall meet. Yeah. I was gonna say, and the interesting thing is, they're both comfortable, relatively young people living in in Manhattan. Correct. <laughs> you know, in the, uh, I guess Seinfeld maybe started in the late eighties, maybe probably probably the early nineties. One is very early nineties, the other is very late nineties. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because uh, I, I've, I've been, you know, everyone's like, oh, Seinfeld is coming to Netflix. Here's everyone's gonna say how you know offended everyone is, and you know, prepare your essays of outrage and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's interesting because I, I correctly sensed, and I asked you right before we started taping, that you that you were not a fan of Seinfeld. <laughs> Nikki, what is the deal with observational humor? You know, um, yeah. And the thing about this is, is you know, and it may have been that I was too young to necessarily appreciate it. There were a couple, you know, Seinfeld episodes that stand out in my mind simply because everyone was talking about it at the time. Mm-hmm. I definitely remember watching it, but I was not an obsessed, like, oh, my God, I love Seinfeld person. Um, what the best thing that Seinfeld did, as I told you previous to the show start, was introduce me to Friends, which was the best show that was ever on TV ever, possibly. Mm. I've got a lot of years. Certainly Seinfeld the best the anchor yeah, of that Thursday night NBC lineup. Mm-hmm. Um, so in high school, I loved Seinfeld. Uh, really? Oh, my best friend and I were totally into it. We watched you know, watch it come back Friday and, and quote each other to it. Um, but it's funny because I, I had this, you know, at the time thinking it was genius. It's a show about nothing, Mickey. Can you believe it? You know, um, and recognize now, now that I watch it again, it was, you know, for, for, cause I'm about to kick it around. Mm-hmm. You know, it was groundbreaking. It was a very different in its tone and style there. As they, you famously said, no hugs, no learning moments, no very special episodes, mm-hmm. you know, this was, you know, straight up from the mind of Jerry Seinfeld. You know, for the first couple seasons, it would begin, you know, it was very much like, where does a comedian get his ideas? Mm-hmm. And it would be, you know. And be, it was Seinfeld show. and Larry David, right? Yep. Yes. And uh, you can, you know, now that we know Larry David a bit more, a bit of that, you know, kind of dark, cynical uh, mm-hmm. uh, perspective is a little bit clearer. Um, but one of the things I think, first of all, I would argue that it changed over the course of the show. Uh, in a way that I think people didn't, you know, either weren't aware of at the time, or I think they were, maybe the fan base wasn't aware at the time. Um, because one, they eventually, they dropped the, the stand-up bits that used to introduce and close the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, like, I think, you know, people said, you know, uh, the characters on Friends, they felt like they were friends with them, right? Yes. And they very much wanted to have, ah, oh, you know, my friend Phoebe, she's the ditzy one. And oh, very much. My friends out. very much were on TV at that time. Yeah. And I was okay with it. And I think this is where it's going to be really interesting, too, though, is that with Friends, when it was on Netflix, it, it was so obsessive that when they went threatened to take it off, they had to pay the money to bring it back because people mm-hmm. watch it that much. I don't feel like Seinfeld's going to get that kind of welcome. Uh, it'd be interesting to see again. I think the because the other thing, like I said, the tone of it changed. I think you could say in those first couple seasons, 
um, that Jerry Seinfeld and and uh, was the, you know and Elaine played by Julie Louis Dreyfus were the kind of people who you would be comfortable having friends with. You know, Jerry always had something funny to say or some observation that was very off kilter. Uh, Kramer was that wacky friend. We're like, oh my god, I can't understand how that guy you know manages to get through the day. George was yes, kind of the loser, but there was something kind of lovable and very loyal about him. Um, they made very clear, particularly in the very uh, controversial and infamous finale, these were four horrible human beings. Correct. Um, who and, and so, I, so as I look at it today, and having once really liked the show, there's a coldness to it. Um, there's a that, that whole thing about like if maybe the '80s sitcoms, particularly the family sitcoms, had been a little saccharine and a little syrupy and too sweet and you know everything worked out just fine in the end or something Seinfeld was a refreshing change that then ended up going way too far in the other direction where well it took and instead of having like one snarky character Mm. they're all snarky characters none of them feel sincere yeah yeah it's a good point that there was not a you know, maybe particularly in the first couple of seasons, Jerry was the guy you could latch onto the everyman yeah. sort of character. I think he was supposed to be throughout, but he changed as well, mm-hmm. becoming yeah. more and more cynical. The, the the crutch of you know, so I'm dating a girl. She's a low talker. I can't understand what she's saying. She's got a low talk. You know, yeah. Um, the, the, one of the four characters would be dating someone that that they'd have a trait. They would you know obsessively analyze that trait. Something would go wrong, and you know, roll credits. Well, it became a show about them attacking anyone. Yeah, that infiltrated their group. Yeah, um, and they, they, whereas they, they, my they, friends obviously welcomed other friends into the group. Yeah, um, the Seinfeld group—they were very much their own. I mean, even when what was his name, George's fiance died. Ooh, that's turning point. But tell me your thoughts on that one, because I well, I, the the fiance did from the envelope licking thing. Um, one obviously fascinating way to get rid of a character. Uh, it again, though, it was just so ice cold. Like, yeah, ice cold. like a, a key plot point was that none of the characters were all that sad about it. Um, mm-hmm. that, that George had been terrified of getting married, that he didn't want to get married. He was too much of a chicken to, to be honest about his feelings. Her death was getting out of it. Mm-hmm. And I believe at the end of that episode, which was like, <clears throat> apparently okay so they had a uh, larry david used to impersonate george steinbrenner okay. and they talked george steinbrenner into doing a cameo and the whole idea was a cameo attends the wedding of george or something when she keels over dead from uh uh bad envelope glue and licking them for the invitations or something like that right yeah and and so i, I believe they, ne- they never aired like they had like 40 some minutes worth of material and they had to cut it down to 22 episodes 22 minutes um but i gotta figure that it's somebody behind the scenes must have said, you know, if, if we end this episode with all four of them sitting in the diner and all kind of shrugging off the fact that George's fiance just died, these stop being a bunch of lovable, you know, guys, you know, friends down the street, you know, no, they, they come across as sociopaths, right? That they're, right. they're completely incapable of empathy. And it was, that had been a really good season. And it, and, you know, I think that might've been, Somewhere in there was the peak because after that it came back colder and harder. So how did they end it? Um, I, I, I was I think it ended on a with some variation of that them sitting in the diner, and I think that's where a certain chunk of fans were like, "Wow, 
you know, right. that, that, you know that these that this all of a sudden the characters don't seem quite so lovable anymore. Um, right. The other thing is, I'll, I, I'll also note it's one of the few times I've seen a show. Now we have you know, shows are sequential, right? Where you know one episode leads to another, leads to another. If there's a change, it carries over or something. Uh, first season, they're clearly still getting to know these characters, and I believe in the first season it was kind of an important point that Jerry and Elaine had dated at some point. It didn't work out, but they remained friends. Mm-hmm. There's some sort of first season episode where Jerry and Elaine get back together, and it's a little bit weird. But they, they, you know, they clearly, you know, they rekindle the attraction. Things happen. They sleep together, and they ended the episode as a couple. Start the next episode. Things are back to normal. Hmm. And I've rarely seen shows write themselves into a corner. And then just simply not acknowledge it. <laughs> it was kind of a, you know, it, one of those weird things where um, you could tell I, they were feeling their way along. So, you know, no, no. Well, I no think one of the more time. interesting things now that I'm looking back at Seinfeld is that the characters never grew. Yeah. Or and developed. That was, you know, they were like here's the South the Park of grownups. Yeah. And it's kind of, on the one hand, that was refreshing, as I said, in that era of syrupness and all that stuff. But maybe it's an idea that can only last three or four seasons because by season five, season six, You've seen these characters in all of these circumstances before. Mm. And, you know, one, it gets repetitive. And two, um, again, if every episode will end with the couples breaking up, the Kramer's wacky financial scheme doesn't work out. Um, troubles at work, whatever, you know, it always, it, it often the episodes would begin with the four of them at the diner and it would end with the four of them at the diner. Right. And lots of things that happened, but in the end, their lives had remained the same. And at that point, even in the context of a comedy, it's kind of hard to do, uh, uh, kind of hard to do, uh, the, the, you need dramatic tension. You need something to be at stake for uh, the audience to be, uh, to be grabbed by that. So, you know. Yeah, and, but, there, but again, because there was really no development in any of their relationships, not with each other, not with other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's amazing that people stayed with it as long as they did. Now, you loved it at the time. Do you remember why? Um, I think it was, again, his observations were funny. It was also observed, there was an interesting uh, boundary pushing this. People, again, we talk about things you couldn't show today. There was a whole episode that was all about, I think, you know, Jerry's college newspaper does an interview with him when when George is around. And they write about George and Jerry being lovers, being gay. (laughs) And their whole reaction is, now everybody's going to think that we're gay. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Right? Uh-huh. Um, in my circles, not that there's anything wrong with that. But, you know, and it became this reflex every time they said, and it was this, I think, you know, certainly at the time, this very common attitude, certainly amongst heterosexual men. Mickey, I'll let you uh, speak on behalf of heterosexual women. That you simultaneously didn't want to be seen as intolerant or homophobic or, or anything like that. But at the same time, you didn't want anybody thinking you were gay. And it was this, you know, the, the fact that, you know, um, and I remember my friend who was a, uh, you know, Democrat in good standing. And, you know, he and I used to go back and forth a lot. We both had this attitude of not that there's anything wrong with that. But the reason you were saying that is because in your mind, on some level, there was something wrong with that. Right. You did not want that label stuck to you. Now, you show that episode today, people's heads would explode, right? I mean, today's society, you're not even supposed to say, oh, I'm not trans. You might actually be trans and just not know it. That's how... Right. You know? Yeah, you can't say any of those things. Um, 
I, again, there was this boundary pushing going on at Seinfeld that you were not going to see anywhere else on in primetime. Well, I know, and the one that stands out to me, of course, is Spongeworthy. Ah, yes, right. Which you know. was when Elaine, you know, found out that they had discontinued the sponge, which was her preferred form of birth control, and so she bought up as much as she could, mm-hmm. but she knew that she had a limited supply, and so she had to choose when to sleep with someone or not sleep with them based on whether or not she thought they were quote sponge worthy. Yeah. Were, you know, they you know. use, were they, were they someone that was going to be worth giving up one of her sponges for? You know, that's very adult humor. Um, that very much belongs at the 9 PM hour or later, uh, the contest, right? I mean, there's never, oh, right. Been, yes, yes, right. Yes. I mean, like master of your domain, right? Right. You, you don't talk about, you know, even today, that's not, maybe you'd see occasional off-color comments or something like that. Um, but, you but know. Is that what it was? Like, there were these one or two episodes a season that were so, I, I don't want to say edgy, but so, so catchy, almost. Um, well, definitely an element of, oh, my God, I can't believe they're talking about this. Yeah. You know. There's nobody else to do it. But also, I would say day in, day out, you know, they were, you know, or you know, week in, week out. It was a funny show. It was 22 minutes of a very funny show. The stand up bits, the wackiness, uh, you know, again, whatever, you know, Michael Richards going off and going on, generating his own controversies and stuff. He would burst through that doorway, slide and all that kind of stuff. And not only would the audience applaud, but the audience would laugh because he looked ridiculous. He looked like mm-hmm. this giant, you know, cartoon come to life or something like that. Um, you know, there was a, um, sorry, it was interesting because you definitely could have certain characters you could relate to more. Um, here's the, you know, the, the, and to the extent, you know, there was a, a lot of, you know, look, every stand-up comedian was getting sitcoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually it was a family sitcom. You know, Seinfeld didn't pretend to be, you know, the lovable dad or anything like that. Um, Which, if, if anything, you know, ironically, I, it turns out to be a good thing. Yeah, well, yeah. Seinfeld is Jerry Seinfeld. The character is the last sane man in an insane world, and it's interesting. You know, Seinfeld. You know, he was loved in New York. It was a very New York show, but it was also kind of loved across the country because it kind of said, you know, New York. And this is pre-Giuliani New York. Mm-hmm. New York is full of weirdos. True. Right. Every... Definitely was about like it. Definitely was a misfits or cool kind of moment. Yeah, and this kind of this sense of you know. Uh, yep, that's what he does. He, you know, he talks with his mouth full or something. I don't know, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. there, there was some sort of trait and every, you know, character had this or something. And he'd, um, they basically <laughs> were stereotypes. Yeah. Okay. Life. All right. Now here's the, so, um, you talk about, you know, also the occasional boundary pushing and it's not surprising that Jerry Seinfeld today is one of those comedians who every now and then kind of pushes back against political correctness. Mm-hmm. They do a storyline, which he's dating a, a woman of native American heritage. She has to borrow something, or or she she gives him something, and then she says, "Oh, you know what? I actually need it back." <laughs> and he's about to say, "You can't do that. Then you'll be a." And he can't say it, <laughs> and everyone's thinking Indian giver, but he can't say it because he knows it would be a terrible thing, you know. Um, or there's something else where he uh, there's some sort of reference to reservation. So, you know, there, there's um, there, there are all these things where he knew there were just, you know, common idioms that he realized would sound kind of offensive saying this to a, a Native reservation. American. Right. You know, all, all these little things. Mm-hmm. And and he kind of recognized this thing. Which, look, it's um, he's dating her. He clearly isn't, you know, uh, racist or, or driven by any animus. 
But the degree to which just by saying the kind of words you're used to saying, you could end up doing something very offensive to someone. You know, he had his finger on that at a time when you weren't going to get that from, you know. Uh, it's a very much a predictor show. of, you know, where we are now. Yeah. Because you can't say anything. Mm-hmm. And I find myself thinking on a regular basis, I don't think you're allowed to say that anymore. No. Uh, you know, it, you, what, People say things to me all the time, and I think in my head, I don't think you're allowed to say that anymore. Uh, because you know how people, like, in general, people are not like they are online. People are not like they are on Twitter, in that they are not generally, like, super offended by everything that comes out of someone's mouth. Um, but there are times where people catch you still by surprise, and you think, hmm. Yeah, don't say that. You probably shouldn't say that out loud because, you know, they'll be coming for you next. Yeah, and, and I, there, there are two as, you know, two big aspects of this. And you and I have talked about this in the past and probably we'll talk about it again in the future. You and I joke about, oh, thank goodness social media wasn't around when we were in high school um, because of the Jesus. sheer number of, you know, offensive, dumb uh, st- you know, th- things that would just, you know, not be, be approved of today embarrassing photos, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, because our lives weren't constantly being curated and, mm-hmm. and creating a permanent record of things we say and do and think. You know, you might write in a diary and then you go back to your old bedroom and you'll find that diary and you're like, oh my God, you know, I sounded like a nut job. But, you know, right. <laughs> you, but, you know, but the only person who knows it is you and anybody who finds that diary. Now, for the Right, point, you're not you're necessarily putting, putting it, on, it online and publishing for everyone to read. Yeah, you know. Um, and thank goodness we weren't, you know, so, or, or the idea of casual conversations <laughs> where you might say something that would be offensive in a whole, in other people's context or, or in today's context, you know, again, we didn't have a million devices recording everything that, you know, we, we, we kind of signed on to a surveillance state without really noting, knowing it, <laughs> you know, true, true. Um, you know, it, it definitely, and we've talked about this before again, we'll talk about it again. But the idea of social media being so strong, like just this week, there was a man, a young man, I should say, he's actually a kid. He was like in his teens um, who was stabbed and beaten by like six or seven other young kids, like teenagers. And they said up to 70 people could have actually video of it, but not one of them stepped in to help. They videotaped him being stabbed to death. The, and some um, of them live streamed it. <laughs> was it a? Um, I know there was some comedian who, after Rodney King, said, "You know, God forbid if I'm ever in that circumstance, put the camera down and help me." Right. <laughs> um, it's just it was you know it's one of those things where people again, uh, very famous true crime case, uh, Kitty Genovese. Oh um, yeah. In the, you know, there was a very famous story about her being, you know, murdered and there were up to, you know, 32 witnesses who nobody called the cops. Well, it wasn't exactly how that went down. Yeah. Um, that was more of a myth behind it. But the idea of it actually happening and not only happening, people were uploading this as content instead of stepping in to help this kid. And he's dead. I mean, how do you feel if you're one of those people holding that video camera? Like, do you have no soul? What is wrong with you? Well, you used to see this in uh, in other contexts when uh, something absolutely terrible would be happening overseas. U.S. military could do something about it. 
obviously would carry a little bit of risk. And certain leaders would say, we, the United States proudly bears witness to uh, what's happening. Means we're standing and watching. Right. <laughs> you know? Like, we're doing something by watching. Nah, no. Sort of, but not really. No. Yeah. no. And again, with these people, like, they're actually asking the people to turn in their videos if they have them. They don't even know how many people are actually there watching. Ah, oh, it's Greedo. You're dead, but you you meet St. Peter at the Pearly Gates, and he tells you, you got great rate. You you went viral fast, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to do you a lot of good then. That's great. It's just, like I said, it was horrifying to me. But again, this is, you know, it's it's becoming more and more common where people will pull out their phone and video it and not have a normal human reaction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can, because when people say, ah, you know, I wish we could put the genie back in the bottle and... Ah, uh, wouldn't it be, you know, see these cell phones, everybody's, you go to a public place and everybody's looking down at their phones. Look, think of all the times we have, you know, had uh, uh, images of crime, uh, police brutality, Philando Castile, um, all the different times we've seen something that somebody else didn't want to be seen because now every single person is walking around with a camera. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Bob yeah, Etheridge. I, I the, think that in yeah. many ways it far outweighs, well, what the benefit of a smartphone is far outweighs anything that social media does, but you can have the phone without being on social media too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we have smartphones. Now we just need smart users. <laughs> there you go. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, one of the things I did want to mention quickly to our listeners, um, I know we're kind of wrapping up here shortly is a podcast that I just recently listened to. Um, one of my peeps on Twitter recommended it to me and it's a podcast called culpable. And it tells the story of Christian Andrakio. And I hope that I'm saying his last name right, which I'm guessing I'm probably not. Um, And he was in Meridian, Mississippi. He was found dead in, I believe it was February of 2014, maybe. Um, I I can't remember the exact year. Um, But anyway, it was ruled a suicide. It was ruled a suicide within 45 minutes of the 911 call and close. Really? Yeah. They tried to deliver a pizza in that time or something? Right. Like and so there were two people that were in the apartment at the time of the so-called suicide. Um, there are a lot of pieces that just don't add up. And it's a really fascinating and frustrating tale of a family trying to get justice for their son. And I highly recommend it. It will suck you in. You will be invested. Um, and at this time, they are actually offering a $100,000 reward for anyone that helps to lead to an arrest and conviction in the case. So yeah. there's a lot of evidence that's out there. And I think that if you're into you know true crime and fascinated by podcasts, then I definitely recommend Culpable. And I want to thank the peeps who recommended it to me because it was awesome. You know, there's got to be, you know, there's actually, since Serenet Live is no longer in the business of being funny, here's another free <laughs> idea for them. So you have some thugs. They're like, you know what? We got to get rid of this guy. You know, you could talk to the cops. He knows too much. We got to give him cement shoes and put him in the bottom of the river or something. And then they say, wait a second, wait a second. We got to do it so the cops don't find. They come up with some sort of perfect plan. There's no way the cops will be able to tie it back to us. And all of a sudden they realize, wait a second. What if some true crime podcast starts looking into this? Right. 
What? Because see, here's the thing: those like ah, they don't. No, the, the, it doesn't matter how much time goes by. They love cold cases. They love mm-hmm. to look at stuff. And if there's anything a little <clears throat> unusual, if the autopsy doesn't uh, pick up, these folks will dig into everything the because they've got nothing else to do with their lives. Come for you, right? You know. So the idea they decide not to kill him just because they know there are so many true crime. And, but, but yeah, what are the odds? Look, there are a million and one true crime podcasts out there. Trying, <laughs> the true crime podcast rate is now exceeding the crime rate. You know, well, they're doubling up, they're tripling up. Yeah. Interesting that you mentioned that only because this culpable podcast blew up in a way I think that they were not anticipating. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the national notoriety and sudden listenership, um, it blew up fast. And for that little town of Meridian, Mississippi, it apparently caused a lot of drama between the families that were involved. And so it's kind of an ongoing mm-hmm. thing. Let me hear something. If you are, you know, God forbid anybody you care about is murdered or, or dies under very mysterious circumstances and you suspect foul play. And there's no suspects. Police get stumped. You know, it turns into a cold case. God, this has got to be like, you know, a manna from heaven that like, you know, if you're, you know, the, you know, is at the very least people remember the story of your loved one and oh, they absolutely. know that something went wrong. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the justice has been denied. I think, you know, yeah. um, obviously y'all know that I've lost people tragically and there's part of me that I think that's why I like true crime so much. Mm-hmm. is that it really does, in a way, tell the story of the victim um, from a very different perspective. Mm. I know there's, it, it was a, again, every time you hear about this, in which some, you know, the case of the, oh, uh, here's a great one, it's probably right up your alley, Mickey. There was a, somebody who was looking at Google Maps of a lake in Florida. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at it and they say, you know what, it looks like there's a car under the lake. They call up the local police and say, "Hey, there's a car under the lake." I, you know, I'm, I'm, trust me, I'm just one of those people who obsessively looks at Google Maps. Here's the location. Maybe you guys should check it out. They do. They find it. It's a guy who disappeared in 1993. And we just there's... had a kid discover a car in a lake. Oh, really? Was there a body in that one too, or? Yes, woman. There you go. See, America's hot new trend. Yeah. <laughs> car Finding spotting in lakes. lakes apparently, yes. yes. Um, yeah, and again, it's one of those things where it does give you hope, though, for some of these families that they will at some point get resolution. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that we have definitely found is that the science has caught up with a lot of these perpetrators. Mm-hmm. And whereas they may have been able to get away with something, you know, 30, 40 years ago, um, now the countermeasures would have to be considerably stronger to get away with the same type of crimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, DNA testing and, and all the other kind of, you know. Again, it you know I, I don't know whether this makes people feel safer. I mean, again, there's, well, still, they know there's always your phone is all the time. Yeah, you know your, uh, you know your crime. You know that, that uh, you know there, there's always going to be crimes of passion, and you know we'll mm-hmm. never have a you know department of pre-crime murder-free society or anything like that. But you probably are safer now, uh, or the possibility, the you know a a, mur- a committed person who commits murder is probably more likely to be caught today. Than any other time in our history, and that's you know that's not that's nothing to sneeze at. Correct. Yes, they they have a better chance of being caught. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily crime prevention because that only works in the idea that it if it in some way deters someone from committing a crime, mm-hmm. um, because we can catch them. But you know, criminals usually don't think that through really. <laughs> so <laughs> it becomes a matter of you know at least we are able to catch them. 
with the science. And again, culpable is all about science, but there's a lot of emotion tied to it and something I highly recommend. Um, something that was also very emotional this season was Bachelor in Paradise, which wrapped up this week. Okay, so you, you jumped exactly where I wanted to go because I saw, I saw your comments on Twitter the other night. You asked, were we all ready? I said I wasn't. Yes. <laughs> but I was I glad you were there. your hand, though. I actually kind of wanted to click through and just see what was going on because it looked like, um, you know, people not wearing very much and and sitting around in a beach-like environment or something. So, Bachelor in Paradise is a bunch of castaways, castoffs from the Bachelor franchises, Bachelor and Bachelorette, the people that didn't get picked. They end up single, go to Bachelor in Paradise, and in Paradise, if you know. If you find love, you get a rose, you get to stick around for the week. Every week they rotate men and women getting the roses. So everyone has the power depending on the week, which switches the dynamic, makes it very interesting. And you have multiple relationships going on at one time instead of like just the one focus on the bachelor or bachelorette, which makes it entertaining as well. You did mention that they are half naked. They're probably more than half naked. They run around in trunks or speedos and bikinis all day long because they are in like Mexico. It's beautiful there. They have you know dates that they go on. They have, I mean, beyond drama. They come. The people that they send, like they send them there in groups that are intentionally, like to set off things. Mm. Oh, you know, so and so used to date so and so. So I hope they don't show up. Well, three weeks into paradise, down the stairs they come. <laughs> and. Well, you know, it- if you're going to do a reality show, you might as well put the Pop Rocks and the Cola in the same place. and just see Right. What right. And that is exactly what they do, which is why I think people really do get into Bachelor Paradise. It's hilarious. Um, absolutely hilarious watching these people follow themselves. But so the other night was the finale. So we find out that, you know, again, several of the couples are engaged. Several of the couples are still together um, moving forward. And so yay for them. Several have broken up. But one of the couples specifically... We had watched them from the very beginning, like their trials, their tribulations. They were kind of boring, like as people. And they try to build them up as like this couple we had to be following. And so, you know, we're paying attention to them. We have to listen to their boring stories, all their boring drama back and forth. Fights over this girl. Her name was Nicole. And the man's name was Clay. He used to play in the NFL. And so, and he was the whiniest NFL player I've ever heard in my whole life. I, just, I need you to have that under my understanding. And he was wishy-washy and whatever. And she was also a horrible person. But anyway, neither here nor there. They made us watch the whole thing. They get to the fun, the finale, where he's either supposed to, like, you know, propose or tell her that he loves her. And there's, you know, either leave paradise together or break up forever. You know, the dramatic whatever. And she gets down there. And he's talking and she's talking and she realizes like he's completely flaked out. Like he's, he had skipped out on the fantasy suite the night before said he need to quote, think about things. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, whatever, dude. Like at that point she was done. So she gets down there. They talk. He's like, you know, I'm just not where you are, but I hope that I can get there and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, do you love me? Do you love me, Clay? And he couldn't answer. And she like pushed him and walked away. Right. So we're all like, Ooh, that was, you know, that did not go well. Um, and then after that, we had, you know, there were lesbians that got engaged and they're beautiful. And so obviously it's very, very popular on the show as well. Um, and then you had the other couples that got engaged, whatever. So at the reunion, they always bring the couples up and put them in the hot seat. And, you know, you find out what happened or how they felt after the, either the proposal or the breakup or whatever. 
they completely cut the scenes that included the ending between Nicole and Clay after forcing us to watch them all season. They didn't even do a reunion interview with either one of them. Do you think they wanted some sort of different reaction or different ending and it just at the last second you're like, nah, this isn't good. And, you know, it's, it's part it's of the, the reality of reality it. television. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, we know that there's no reality in reality television, but they had a whole segment where they did this whole gender reveal for old members of the cast that could have been skipped over because I would have, and my, my sources being Reality Steve and others, tell me that, um, and all of their readers, that they actually did have the scenes with Nicole and Clay. They did the interviews. And Nicole basically said that she had moved on past it and whatever, and they literally just cut it out, like, didn't show it. Hmm. And, and again, as someone who watched all season and felt forced to watch this couple that I wasn't a big fan of anyway, um, I felt like they owed us seeing them be miserable and mad at each other. Yeah, it was, it was all, you know, almost all storytelling is build up and then uh, climax or release, right? There's, you know, build, yes. you know, pay off, you know, build up, pay off delivery, prompt, you know, um, and that, it sounds like you're just like, yeah, we just kind of, you know, it's like, it's all, it was the Simpsons ending. It was not Simpsons. It was the Sopranos ending of reality. Yes. <laughs> Screen just goes to black. That's it. That's all you got. Well, and it was hilarious because I, I checked the hashtag the night of because I'm like, did I miss it? Like, where are Clay and Nicole? And I realized, I checked the hashtag and every question is, where are Clay and Nicole? Because, <laughs> again, they made us watch them. Yeah. yeah. If they weren't going to, you know, feature them, they may have edited the show a little differently. I'm just saying. Well, you know, I say, I, I was going to say, it sounds like you have a better than usual concept for Bachelor. But yes, you, you are kind of dependent upon what happens amongst the people and the contestants. And, uh, you know, maybe, again, it, it, it was the season finale, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe nothing happened that was really season finale worthy that, that really kind of, you know, I, that is, you know, that is completely possible, I guess. Um, but it was, it, it could have been, I don't know, squeezed in maybe in the 15 minute segments where they talked about things they didn't care about. Okay. Well, so, yes. Yeah, so that was my, that's my bachelor update also for everyone who will be looking forward to the bachelor starting up again, I think in like January. They have announced who the new Bachelor is. And for those of you who watched Hannah B's season, it is Pilot Pete. And so they brought him out last night to introduce <laughs> him like, as that the That sounds new. like a children's character. Come it along really slide with Pilot Pete. You know. Right? He really He's does. the He's flyer who can't be beat. <laughs> He's adorable. And so I genuinely hope that it'll be a fun season because he's a really cute, very likable guy. So, mm. so I'm looking forward to that. But... Yeah, I mean, we've had a lot to talk about this week, Jim, because, you know, there's been a lot going on, but uh, we can probably wrap it up now and try to get back to this again next week. I want to thank our listeners for being so great and sticking with us. We had one of our highest listened to shows ever um, with our with our season opener uh, last week, two weeks ago. And so we're definitely getting back on schedule now. We will be getting out uh, new podcasts to you weekly or biweekly. And um, certainly we appreciate you sticking with us over the hiatus of the summer. Wow. I just looked at the numbers. Yes. Everybody really did re listen to that. Yeah. One. They really so did. Thank you for listening, everyone. You, yes, you got a wow you. out of me. You wowed thank me. You. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Um, thank you for sharing. Thank you for subscribing. Please do that. Please comment. Please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. 
you can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us really anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Just search for The Jim and Mickey Show or hashtag TJAMS, T-J-A-M-S, and you can find us. Um, also, if you want to hook up with us on Facebook or Twitter, you can catch up with me at Bias Girl, and he is, of course, at Jim Garrity. I do want to thank you all for listening and giving us such a huge opener last week. And I look forward to talking with you again next week. I'm Nikki White. He's Jim Garrity. And you've been listening to the one, the only, Jim and Mickey Show.